Let me now invite you to get your Bibles. And um, I'm going to invite Rebecca, and she's going to come, and she's going to read for us. Um, John's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 15 through 24, actually. And if you would stand, please, we'll read God's Word together. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 24. Let's read. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But it is, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Thank you. You may be seated. Her name was Sonia, and she was five foot tall, um, and she met us in the lobby of the Hotel Warsaw in the middle of Moscow. Um, she was our tour guide for that day, and she kind of went through all the different places that we were going to go, and she said, now it's very important that when we go out that you follow me. And so we went out, turned the corner, and went into the Russian underground called the Metro. And as soon as we got in there, there was a hustle and bustle of people Everywhere, Boris's, Sergey's, and Galena's, all over the place, shoulder to shoulder, getting to wherever they needed to go. Now, she may have been five foot tall, but she was fast. And we had a hard time keeping up with her. And we were trying to get through all these people, and she just said, I'll wait for you, but just make sure you follow me. And so in the metro, we're trying to follow her. Actually, in the trains, we're trying to follow her, and she's still keeping ahead of us. We finally get to Red Square. And it happened to be um, Men's Day in Russia, which is kind of a big patriotic, you know, um, political day. And Red Square on that day was packed with men. 
and men in all of their old Russian uniforms, living the history of their um, communist era. And so they're all standing around drinking their vodka. And she says to us, follow me as we're squeezing through all these people. And she knows we look like tourists and we look like Americans. And she's a little concerned for us. But follow me, she said. And so we kept on following her. And that day, everywhere she went, we followed her. Now, what was interesting was that I was uh, probably about uh, 12 or so years younger than I am, leaner than I am, probably a little stronger than I am. And uh, there was a guy who was with me by the name of Bill. And Bill was shorter, he was stockier, and he was much older at that point in time than I was. And it was not unusual for me to be following Sonia and for Bill to be following me. And uh, it was just part of the, the package of that day. Now, this, this expression, follow me, is not a new one as we come to the Gospels, is it? In fact, it's an expression that is used often to talk about the Christian's relationship with Jesus Christ, because Jesus comes and says, follow me. And so this morning, as we come to this passage, as we come to this final chapter, and really this final paragraph in the final chapter, which is kind of this, this um, end uh, of, of this gospel, it's this place where, where John is, is, is finishing up, giving some some clarification, giving some perspective, giving some application from all the evidence that he has given us about Jesus. In this epilogue, he is pushing us now to understand the importance of following Jesus, and he does that through this, this person, Peter, and his interaction with Jesus. Now, this expression, follow me, is the expression that Jesus used initially as he called the disciples to himself. If you have your Bibles, just turn back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, you'll see there in verse 43, after he'd interacted with a few disciples, specifically it says, it says here, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. And if you were to turn to Mark chapter 1 and verse 17, you would find that it says, uh, actually in verse 16 and 17, it says this, passing along the, the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who also is Peter, right, and Andrew, the son of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. But it is also an expression used in the Gospels during the ongoing teaching of the disciples. Because Jesus uses this expression often. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, in John chapter 10, verses 4 through 5, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And then John chapter 12, verse 26 says this, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. So yes, it was an expression used to call the disciples into discipleship, it was also an expression used in the ongoing teaching of those disciples in their responsibility to, to continue to follow him and the implications of that. But now, as we get to the latter part, we find this is specifically uh, an expression used in Jesus' interaction with Peter. John chapter 13, verses 36 and 37 say this, Simon Peter said to him, 
Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then now in our particular chapter, notice verses 19 and 22. Verse 19 says this. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he, that's Jesus, said to him, that's Peter, what? Follow me. All right? And then if you look at verse 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain, talking about John, until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, I may be stating the obvious, but it's important to understand this is not just some new phrase that we've come up with. There is a purpose why Jesus is using this expression. There's a purpose why John is identifying it in his record here of these events that take place around this breakfast fire. In this last paragraph, Jesus takes the disciples back to where it all began. His initial call to follow me and I will make you fishers of men has now moved them to go through their experience with Jesus over three years where they are eyewitness of all the evidence that has been put out there for them to see, listening to him preach the good news of the gospel, watching him perform miracle after miracle, restoring the blind, healing the lame, turning water into wine, feeding the 5,000, and then above all, having personally observed his arrest, his trial, his death, his resurrection. It's based on all of these evidences now that Jesus once again calls them to reaffirm that first commitment to follow me. And then, ultimately, to go on with him in the power of the Holy Spirit as they fulfilled their ministry together for the glory of God. So what we see unfolding in this passage are four dynamics of faithful, loving followers of Christ. All right, followers of Christ need to be restored. They need to be responsible. They need to be growing in their discipleship. They need to recognize the benefit and the beauty of others who are also partnering with them. And so we want to, to, to delve in now to this passage and ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to follow Christ? And here, we want to recognize that there's a need for us to follow in restoration. That is what Jesus is doing with Peter in the beginning of this passage. So ap after an empty night of fishing, and when Jesus finally calls them and says, listen, cast the net on the right side, and they get this bunch of fish, he brings them together for breakfast. It's a much-needed breakfast, but that, that breakfast also was an opportunity for some much-needed confrontation from Jesus to Peter. Notice what it says, now I'm going to read verses 15 through um, verse 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon... Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. 
He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, in order for us to understand the impact of what's going on here, we need to remind ourselves that Peter had boasted of his reliability in the presence of any kind of danger, and he did that in the presence of the other disciples. So Jesus now asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The these, talking about the disciples, they're all sitting around this fire now, and he says, do you love me more than these? He's not talking about the fish, okay? He's talking about the other disciples. Do you claim to be superior in your love for me than the rest of these disciples? Now, certainly, loving Jesus is important for a disciple, but the emphasis here is, do you love me more than these? Are you saying that you are somehow greater in your love than these other disciples? Because he made these bold claims. All right, listen to um, how Matthew reports it in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 33 and follow. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Oops. Right? Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Hmm. But you see, Peter's the one who's speaking up. Peter is the one who is boldly proclaiming his allegiance. And this confrontation encounter is for Peter a means both of personal and public restoration. Let's look at the personal restoration. A, a personal restoration to his commitment to follow Jesus. Peter had denied Jesus on that day of arrest as they were in the, the, the palace of Annas, the high priest. And the next time we see Peter is after the resurrection. In Luke chapter 24, verse 34, we are told that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to Simon, apparently alone. And this is verified by Paul's account of the events that took place after the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen as I read chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's also Peter, then to the twelve. So there was this one-on-one -on -one encounter that Peter had with Jesus. We're not given any data. More than that, and I don't want to say anything more than Scripture. You have to wonder at that point in time when Peter encounters Jesus, what is he doing? What is he asking? What is he wanting? Well, very likely, he's acknowledging his failure of denying him three times, and he's seeking forgiveness from his risen master. Scripture doesn't say that, but I think we can assume that somewhere along the line here, that is what's going on. 
Now, each question that Jesus asks here, Simon, son of John, do you love me, bites deep and is a reminder of his failure. How many times did Jesus ask the question? Three times. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. So I'm sure he was hurt at these words from the lips of his master. He endures the questions twice by responding, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And of course, loving the master and loving Jesus is critically important. But after Jesus confronts him the third time, he's grieved. This is certainly a painful conversation, but it's pain with a purpose for Peter. We are reminded of the words found in Hebrews. For, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. So there is this personal restoration that, that Jesus is working on Peter with these questions, seeking restoration, seeking to establish him once again, seeking to bring him back into fellowship, asking that critical question, do you love me? But not only is there a personal restoration, there is also public restoration. Peter may have been the leader of the disciples, the one to speak on their behalf, the one who spoke boldly about following Jesus, the one who jumped out of the boat, if you remember, when he recognizes Jesus on the shore there. But Peter needed his public restoration to reinforce his role and mission going forward. It was Peter who boldly proclaimed his allegiance in front of the other disciples. And so now, Jesus forces Peter to do what? To boldly affirm, once again, his allegiance to the master in the presence of those other disciples. So in order for Peter to be useful for ministry, Peter needed to be restored to Jesus through forgiveness, but also restored and reinstated in the presence of the disciples. This is public restoration. Now, friends, a relationship with Jesus begins when we face up to all that grieves him and contradicts his holy will in our lives, no matter what it costs. Now, sometimes we want to we restore things with people. Or maybe we want to get things right with God, but we don't want the costs that come with it. We don't want the embarrassment that comes with it. We don't want the hurt that comes with it. And what we have here is an example of the fact that those things are all part and parcel of what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. This takes place at the beginning of our Christian life as we are regenerated through the gospel this is also something that takes place continually through our Christian lives. No matter how desperate our failure, no matter how deep-seated our shame, Jesus can forgive us and renew us for service. Our failure is never final with God. But sometimes those conversations and sometimes the restoration that is necessary is painful. And we don't like that. And we don't want that. So we don't pursue restoration, even personally, but certainly not in a public context. It's none of their business. They don't need to know what's going on with me. And you know, there's a lot of things that a lot of people don't need to know. 
But there is a place for public affirmation of someone who has fallen in sin, who has failed, and the church that is forgiving and is restoring desires to lift them up and encourage them by publicly affirming them. Simon on his own will always be Simon. He has no capacity beyond that. But get this, Simon trusting in Jesus is Peter the rock from whose witness and leadership the church will receive its earliest foundation. The Alberts and Sarahs and Cathys and Sams and Janes of this world will always be Albert, Sarah, Kathy, Sam, and Jane and will never rise beyond that. But when they trust in Jesus, they are new creatures with new names and new identities through which God will build his church. It is God that takes people and he regenerates them. He restores them. He places them back in place. Not simply because they have done something, but because he is at work in and through them. He is the one that deserves the credit. And all he calls us to do is to seek, to live for him, to confess our sins, to pursue him daily, and to seek to live for his glory and with his help. This also speaks to the need of the community of believers to be a place of loving confrontation. Now, friends, sometimes that loving confrontation is, is something that hurts. Sometimes it's embarrassing. I remember times when I, I've had to, being faithful to God, lead a church through bringing someone before the church or talking to the church about a particular person's name, and people are offended. How could you do that? Where is the grace? And my response is, I am following God's instructions. I'm following his directions. And there is an embarrassment, there's a hurt, but there is a restoration that comes through that that is far more important than someone's particular feelings at that point in time. And obviously, we don't mean to do things abusively. We do it lovingly and kindly. But sometimes the public aspect is difficult. So we want to make sure that, that there is a context and gateway Bible church where if we have to deal with sin, we deal with it in a loving, compassionate way. But recognize that sometimes shame is there, but with that shame there is a joy of restoration. Okay? Now I know there is some, you see this on YouTube, You've seen it on exposés, you know, churches that have the sin chair or something like that, right? You know, someone's done something bad, they come and sit on the sin chair, and the pastor preaches the message at them, all right? We're not going to do that, just in case you're wondering. All right, there is, there's an abusive side to that, but there is also this loving side, maybe in the context of a home group, and someone sharing, you know, I'm struggling with this sin, and, you know, I failed, and I, the whole church doesn't need to necessarily know about it. It stays in the context of the, of the home group that that person's talking about. And they're, they're loving and encouraging someone in their, their walk with God to grow. And if there is that, not that kind of open context, then friends, people try to live their lives in isolation. And they typically are not dealing with their sin because they need someone to walk with them in the process. The goal of loving confrontation, according to Matthew 18, 15 through 20, is to win your brother or sister. All right? It's not punitive. It is restorative. 
And the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Are we doing a good job at public restoration? Now, I'm not asking you to fill that with images of people doing all different things, but is there a context? Is there an attitude? Is there a feeling that if we had to, and if there is something, are we doing a good job at public restoration? Are we quick to condemn? Are we quick to avoid? Or are we quick to support and help people work through their sin and their struggle and restore their work with God? We want to be able to have a a context in our church where we can be honest and and open about the struggles that we have and recognizing there would be this kind of restoration that would honor and glorify God. That's what's going on here with Jesus and the disciples and Peter. They're sitting around this, this fire. And you guys know what it's like to sit around a fire. There's something that's, that's kind of liberating, right? You, you, there's a lot of things you can talk about. I mean, just something about a fire opens things up among people. And here they are sitting, and Jesus psst, homes in on Peter because he loves him, because he cares about him, because he is preparing him for ministry. And he needs to restore him so that having been restored, he can be free now to do what he's called to do. Painful, but purposeful. So not only do we need to follow in restoration, and that is true for all of us. We need to be willing to be restored. We're going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as disciples. But we also need to follow in leadership. You might even use the word in responsibility. When God restores, he does not restore into a void. But he restores us into a responsibility. The experience of being forgiven clears the way for serving Jesus. Peter restored is Peter recommissioned. So this restoration leads now into this willingness to be restored into leadership, which would be his particular responsibility, but for us, it would be a different kind of responsibility depending on what God has called us to. Three times Jesus asked Peter, Simon, Simon, do you love me? And three times Peter responds, you know I love you. And each time Jesus responds to Peter's answers by saying, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus is calling on Peter to take up the mantle of shepherding, shepherding his fledgling church, which of course at that point in time was just the disciples. But it's, it's a ministry of feeding and tending. The gospel mar- uh, writers of Mark... Um, And Matthew, Mark 8, Matthew 16, record the two questions that Jesus asked the disciples. Whom do men say that I am? And then he homes in and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers that second question correctly by saying this. Well, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound really close to John's purpose for his gospel? You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Look in John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. And in particular, verse 31. All this evidence is being presented to you so that you'll come to the conclusion that you might believe that Jesus is what? The Christ, the Son of God. So Peter here confesses what John is pressing home in this gospel. That is the confession. 
But then as Matthew records that confession, Jesus answers Peter in this way. Matthew 16, verses 17 and following. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which means little rock. And on this rock, this boulder, this foundational stone, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this is a play on words, of course. And what is the big rock that Jesus is talking about? It's the big rock of the confession that Peter has made, that you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. And it's on that foundation that Peter now, along with the rest of the disciples, will begin to establish the church of God. So Peter is restored now to responsibility, and in particular for him, it's responsibility as the leader of the disciples who are going to be establishing the church of God on the earth. It's pretty powerful when you think about it. But restoration needed to come before this this feeding responsibility um, would take place. And in the same way, friends, we must accept that following and loving Jesus means accepting the responsibilities that he has given us. What has he restored you to? He's restored you to be loving and godly husbands or wives. He's restored you to be faithful and loving and caring and godly parents. He's restored you to have a fresh look at your job situation, at the people that you are finding yourself spending time day in and day out as you look at the context of of your neighbors and your neighborhood and all those things are are now places and arenas where, where Jesus has restored you now to have a fresh new responsibility. You start wandering from your walk with God, you start thinking about yourself, don't you? You start thinking about the things you want to do. You start thinking about what benefits you, what you like, and, what, and it's all me, 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 me. And that's the whole theme of selfishness that just gets in the way of what God has called us to do. And when we are restored, we're restored to these new responsibilities that are, are places where God says, I want to be in here, and I want to be in here, and I want to be in here, and this is what I've called you to. But primarily, friends, it is a renewing of our passion for the church of God into which he has placed you. Now, I want, you, I want us to think about this. Commitment to Christ always involves a commitment to the church of Christ. Jesus is not a single person in the sense that he comes to us without other attachments. Jesus is married to his bride, the church. He loves the church. He's died for the church. So to be in relationship with Jesus while at the same time ignoring or even despising his bride is no more acceptable than it would be for human context where we're relating to a married friend. In other words, you are a friend of someone who is the groom and saying, I want to be a friend of yours, but I don't want anything to do with your bride. They're a package deal. And when you have Jesus, it's a package deal. You get him and you get his church. And if you say, well, I don't like his church, and you're saying, I don't like your bride. 
he has called all of us to responsibility in the context of his church. It comes with him. It's part of who he is. He is the head of his body, the church. And why in the world would we not to not want to buy into that and be a part of that? I'm certainly not saying that you're not, but there is this attitude out there that says, you know what? The church, who needs the church? You do! And if you're a follower of Christ, you must embrace the church because that is all part of who he is. So there are two issues that flow out of this point. The need to feed the flock and the need to love the flock. Now this week, this week I, I have been reading a book on pastoral ministry by William Still. You may have seen my blog online but it's a pastor from uh, a previous generation, and, and he makes the case for the need for shepherds to stop playing the games that many shepherds play and to feed their flocks with the Word of God. Listen to what he has to say. I'll put it up on the, on the PowerPoint for you. He doesn't pull any punches. Just listen, okay? If you think that you are called to keep a largely worldly organization, miscalled the church, going, with the infinitesimal doses of innocuous sub-Christian drugs or stimulants, it's a mouthful, isn't it? Then the only help I can give you is to advise you to give up the hope of the ministry and go and be a street scavenger, a far healthier and more godly job keeping the streets tidy than cluttering the church with a lot of worldly claptrap in the delusion that you are doing a job for God. And what he's saying basically is this. So many times in the context of the church, we have pulled so many things into church that is not feeding anyone. Entertainment, things that attract people, when what the sheep need is the word of God. Now he goes on. The pastor is called to feed the sheep, even if the sheep do not want to be fed. He is certainly not to become an entertainer of goats. Let goats entertain goats and let them do it out in goat land. You will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. That's really important. And there, there are churches all around our country and the world that are pandering to the goats, trying to please the goats. And what the goats need is the gospel. Okay? Not to be pandered to. Do we really believe that the word of God, by his spirit, changes as well as maddens men? Maddens men? Yeah. People ought to get upset if they're opposed to God. Or if they're the, if they're the church, if they're sheep, they're going to be receiving it with joy. If we do, we, we, uh, to be evangelists and pastors, feeders of sheep, we must be men of the word of God. So simply put, Peter's and any pastor's responsibility before God is primarily one of feeding the sheep with a steady diet of God's word. Now this ultimately is what Jesus is calling Peter to. Restoration and being restored, now go feed the sheep. Right? Third thing now, there's a responsibility for those who are followers of Christ, is to follow in discipleship. Peter, having accepted his commission, is immediately confronted with the cost 
of following Jesus. And it is a cost that can be summarized as the cross. Notice what it says in verses 18 through verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, this is John's parenthetical statement, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter's life will ultimately be directed by God. His ministry, his missionary activity, his writing, and in death, traditionally understood with pretty good you know, pretty good foundation as being hung on a cross upside down. In other words, stretched out his hands. Tradition says that he did not want to be martyred in the same way that Jesus was martyred, and so they hung him upside down. He would do all this for the glory of God. Now, this is how followers of Jesus should understand life as a disciple of Christ, one that is going to be under the direction and purpose of God that will end up in whatever way God wants it to end up. And in Peter's case, it was crucifixion. It was martyrdom. So there's three areas that I want us to see here. First of all, um, this discipleship is fleshed out in life. The road of discipleship is the road of the cross. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates or puts secondary his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor me. That's John chapter 12, verses 25 and 26. While we are still on earth, the Christian life will be marked by a continual mortification. That means putting to death or crucifying of sin. This is what it means to walk daily in your Christian life in such a way that you are dying daily. You're putting to death that sin. It's this continual walk to become like Jesus. All right? Calvin coined the term the mortification of your flesh. So it's when we, we daily and in a thousand ways die to self and um, do the will of the Lord. Each day we are seeking to honor him with our lives. So that's what's happening in life. But then there is this death. We understand that the road of discipleship is the road of the cross. Some will die martyrs, just like Peter did, and just like all of the other disciples did except for John. Many will die suffering the trial of sickness or tragedy. You know people who have, who have gone through great you know, struggle with their with, with disease, with tragedy, with, with all sorts of things. That's, that's one of the, the ways that God in his divine purpose and will has chosen for his children to enter into heaven. Others will die in sweet calmness, confident of the hope that they have in Christ because of what he has done on the cross. Now here's the point. However God chooses, the follower of Christ rests in the fact that the means of his or her death is in the hands of the Father. How many of you want to die a martyr's death? How many of you want to die through tragedy or through sickness? How many of you would rather die 
and a calm sweetness, hoping in the promise of God, right? I mean, the latter is what we, in our humanity, would like. That isn't what always God calls us to, is it? And it's certainly not what God called the disciples to. But this, this, this cross, this, this suffering, this, this life that is, is lived with this end, it's all part of his purpose. That's what he's saying to Peter. You know, early in life, you did what you wanted, but as you get older, things are going to change, and ultimately, you're going to stretch out your hands, and that is the means, going to be the means of your death. But there's a promise that, that, that is a, a reminder here. In fact, it's, a, it's just kind of hi, uh, hinted at here in the context of Jesus' conversation with the disciples. Notice verse 22 and verse 23. Because not only does the disciple follow him in life and in death, but we also follow him in, into heaven. Verse 22 talks about until I come, right? Jesus said to him, if, if it is my will that he remain until I come. He's coming, that's the point. He's coming for what? Well, that's eschatological language. He's coming to call his bride home. He's calling to establish his kingdom on the earth. He's coming again. And so we as God's children have the joy and the hope of knowing that our discipleship continues all the way through death into this new life that is going to take place in heaven. And friends, that is going to be the fullest expression of life in Christ that we will ever have. John 11, verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Just as Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and glorified, the, the follower of Christ has this wonderful promise that he is crucified with Christ, that he will also experience this resurrection into new life. He has experienced that, and he awaits this glorification. It's promised to him. And friends, that is just a wonderful, wonderful prospect for us. But when, when we're followers of Christ, Jesus is wanting us to follow him in restoration, to be restored into this, this fresh new relationship with him. And that is a daily process that is a reminder of this, this wonderful life that he's called us to. But he also, he also uh, asks us to follow him into this responsibility and whatever that responsibility is, to do it for his glory. And you're going to do that in life. You're going to do that with the prospect of death and with the prospect of this new life in heaven. Now, friends, there's one more aspect here, and I'm calling it this, follow me in partnership. And let me take some time here to explain what's going on. When Peter saw John, verse 21, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, Peter is always getting a bad rap, right? We talked about this last week. Why is Peter out on the lake going fishing when he was already commissioned by Jesus to go? And we found out, you know, if you do a little study, Peter was actually doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing because he was told to go into Galilee and to wait for Jesus. And he's standing around saying, I don't want to wait here and be idle. I want to do something, so I'm going to go fishing. And the other disciples say, well, we're going to go with you. But Peter often gets a bad rap, saying, you know, Peter didn't do what he was supposed to do there. This is another place where Peter gets a bad rap. 
Here's how the commentary goes, something like this. Peter is once again sticking his nose into the business of other people as if he had just heard that he was going to die a martyr's death and he's now whining about, well, what about John? Well, I'm going to die a martyr's death. What about John? What's going to happen to him? Right? That's often how it's presented. Now, let's step back a little bit and let's see that what Peter is doing here is much more purposeful and loving than it may seem at first. Peter's question is based on the intimacy that he had with both Jesus and John. And I would invite you, first of all, to look at verses 20 and 21, and then we're going we're gonna to jump to chapter 13 of John, kind of flash back to that place that is being talked about here in chapter 21, verses 20 and 21. So Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who was that? That's John following them, the one who also, so now, so now they're, they're no longer at the, 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 the fire. They've gotten up and they're moving. Jesus is talking with Peter. John is just a little behind, and he's able to see and apparently to hear what's going on here. But So Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also leaned back against him, that's Jesus, during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So John is leaning on Jesus, sign of intimacy. John is asking the question, who is it that is going to betray you? And if you remember in that context, this was not said out loud, so all the disciples are standing there listening. This is kind of said softly, intimately. Okay. All right. And then verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So there, there was this inner circle of intimacy even among the disciples that we need to see. And it was an intimacy between Peter, James, and John. Those three are usually talked about as kind of like this, um, this, this one level of intimacy with Jesus. And, and this flashback pictures the intimacy that John has with Jesus, leaning on him and asking the questions. And let's go to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verses third, uh, 24 and 25. John chapter 13 Verses 24 and 25. So Simon Peter, it says here, motioned to him. That's talking about John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. You, know, you just kind of enter into the story here, right? They're, they're just kind of, there's this intimate discussion going on around this table, and it's Peter and John and Jesus, and there's this intimate kind of signaling going on. Peter's like, man, that's, you know, it's that kind of a thing, right? And so John now is the, is the one who, who, who actually speaks. So the disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? So what I want us to see here is this. The intimacy between Peter and Jesus, between John and Jesus, and between Peter and John. So the point of all this is to say that Peter is asking a genuine question about a close friend and co-laborer. Maybe out of curiosity, maybe out of concern, but it is not necessarily a whiny question of complaint. You see that? You've got to be careful because it's so easy to jump on Peter. Oh, he's Peter. What's he going to do wrong now? This is his dear friend. They have been ministering for three years together with Jesus. They have been this, 
this kind of inner circle, so to speak, with Jesus. Still, Jesus' response can be summarized as, Peter, it's none of your business. Look at verse 22 of our, of our passage, of our text. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, what I choose to do with John is not your concern. What I expect for you to do is to follow me, where I send you. I have a plan for you, and I have a plan for John, but you worry about following me. I look back in my life, and I look back at some of the people that I grew up with, and might want to say grew up with in, in the Lord, in the context of a, of a healthy Christian environment, and and I see how God has directed some of them in different areas of life. And uh, I think of the guy who was the best man in my wedding who uh, now is in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And he is an associate pastor, but he is also very involved with the seminary that they have there. And he's very active in training and teaching, counseling in that context. And that ha- that's how God directed him in his life. And he, God's directed me in my life to come out here to California. And I think of another friend who was a missionary in Costa Rica who God allowed to suffer with cancer and who's now in his presence. And God takes different people in different places with different passions that love the same God. But he has a job and a responsibility and a ministry and opportunity for you. Now pray for one another. But think about what God is calling you to do. What ministry is he wanting you to be involved in? Now, what's interesting here is that that John alerts us to how even in the context of the church, the words of Jesus can be taken out of context and misused and misapplied. Notice what it says here, verse 23. So the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Is that what Jesus said? And John says, no. Clarification moment at the end of this gospel. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? He wasn't necessarily giving a prophetic prophetic answer about John. He was just saying, listen, your responsibility is to do what I've called you to do. But isn't it interesting how people can take something and go with it. And remember, John's gospel is like one of the last resources, books to be written in the, in, in the Bible that we have here in the New Testament. And so John is speaking years removed now from the other gospels after this has been reported. And he's bringing clarification because this is a rumor. This is a belief that people have been holding on to, that John somehow is this super... Christian, the super disciple, the super apostle, because what? He was not to die. And who's writing this gospel? John. He's writing about himself. And he's saying, listen, stop talking that way about me. That's not what Jesus said. Now, what's important then here is this. God was going to choose Peter. And Peter would have a strategic 
pastoral ministry in the founding and the forming and the building of the church in that early Christian era. But he would die a martyr's death. This other person that was part of this intimacy group, John, would have a strategic, historical, theological witness, especially in written form. And he would live a long life, dying in old age. Similar, but different purposes. Different gifts. Different personalities. Different ways that God used them. And yet all to the glory of God. Now we who follow the Lord Jesus Christ must recognize that he has called us to specific things. And so as we just kind of reflect over the four points that we've talked about here, he restores us then back to fellowship with him, but he restores us into a responsibility. And that responsibility, although may be common, things like marriage and parenting and work, he calls us to some specific areas because of our spiritual giftedness as well as our natural giftedness, and he's called us to do that for his glory. And as we do that, we are in this process of discipleship, awaiting God's purpose, God's direction until he brings us home. But all of that's part of his glory. All of that's part of his purpose for our lives. And while we are doing that, we need to primarily focus on him, but personally focus on what he has called us to do. And as we're doing that, be mindful of those who are co-laborers in Christ and encourage and strengthen and support them. Following Jesus is what he is calling us to. He's asking those who are reading this gospel to say, look at the evidence, believe, and live. But this living now is a living of following. And you follow Jesus. God calls us to focus on our specific responsibilities and callings. John concludes by reminding the readers that this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, talking about himself, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So John here is establishing the fact that he is the author of the gospel, he's the eyewitness, and that his eyewitness is genuine and trustworthy. Now friends, that brings us almost to the end of John's gospel. We have one verse that we're going to look at next week. But today I, wanna, I just want to ask a question and I want us to think through now the application of that question just a little bit. Who or what are you following today? You wear the garments of Christianity, attending church, being a part of church activities, talking the language that church people talk, reading your Bible, praying, doing all those things, but it's possible for a child of God to not be following God, to be following your own purposes, your own agenda, your own goals, your own will. Who or what are you following today? Remember I told you at the beginning about this, this journey that I had with Sonia and Bill, and as we were going through these different places, Sonia would say, follow me, and in the back, Bill would be saying this, if I can't see Sonia, I can at least see you. 
when you are following, guess what? You're also leading. And there are people that are following you as you follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to Peter, we look to John, we look to other disciples and say, they follow Jesus, but we also look at them and say, but I want to follow Jesus in like fashion and honor him with my life. We, we are examples. And are we leading by examples? Are we leading in such a way that other people are following us? And maybe they're having difficulty seeing Jesus, but they not, may not have difficulty seeing you. And are you living your life in such a way where other people can say, I want that? Now, friends, all of this takes us back to the fact that John is presenting evidence so that we would believe and we would have life. And this life on this earth looks like disciples following Jesus Christ and being honest about their sin and their struggle, being restored, taking responsibility, embracing discipleship with all it brings, and ultimately joining with others who are doing the same thing for the glory of God. May we all be strengthened and encouraged to do that very thing for his glory and with his strength. Lord, help us today just to wrap our hands around what it means to follow you, to be people who love you, to be people who are willing to hear hard things from you so that you can fashion and shape us to be prepared and ready so that we can take on responsibility for your glory. And Lord, I realize sometimes that as we come to passages like this and as we think about characters in the Bible, it seems like, Lord, these were special people for special tasks and we just live our lives in the mundane and yet, Lord, we recognize that it is the mundane where you live and where you breathe through us. And so, Lord, help us with the responsibilities that we have that may to us seem very insignificant compared to someone like Peter or John who were so mightily used by you in the founding of the church. Lord, would you help us to have the same vigor and the same purpose and the same diligence and the same uh, reliance on you, Lord, as we carry out the responsibilities you have called us to. Lord, convict us, strengthen us, restore us, use us, Lord, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.